0: Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Plato's Dialogue, The Euthyphro, Part 1. The year is 399 BC, before Christ. The famous Greek philosopher and gadfly, Socrates, meets with the priest of Apollo, Euthyphro, an expert on religious matters in Athens, outside the courthouse known as the Porch of the King Archon. Both men have legal business before the court this day. The dialogue begins with Euthyphro being surprised at finding Socrates here instead of his usual place at the market in Athens. Why have you left the Lyceum, Socrates? And what are you doing in the porch of the King Archon? Surely you cannot be concerned in a suit before the King, like myself." Not in a suit, Euthyphro. Impeachment is the word which the Athenians use. What? I suppose that someone has been prosecuting you, for I cannot believe that you are the prosecutor of another. Certainly not. Then someone else has been prosecuting you? Yes. And who is he? A young man who is little known, Euthyphro. And I hardly know him. His name is Miletus, and he is the deem of Pythus. Perhaps you may remember his appearance. He has a beak, and long, straight hair, and a beard which is ill-grown. No, I do not remember him, Socrates. But what is the charge which he brings against you? What is the charge? Well, a very serious charge, which shows a good deal of character in the young man, and for which he is certainly not to be despised. He says he knows how the youth are corrupted, and who are their corruptors. I fancy that he must be a wise man, And seeing that I am the reverse of a wise man, he has found me out, and is going to accuse me of corrupting his young friends. And of this, our mother the state is to be the judge. Of all our political men, he is the only one who seems to me to begin in the right way, with the cultivation of virtue in youth. Like a good husbandman, he makes the young shoots his first care, and clears away us who are the destroyers of them. This is only the first step. He will afterwards attend to the elder branches. And if he goes on as he has begun, he will be a very great public benefactor. I hope that he may, but I rather fear, Socrates, that the opposite will turn out to be the truth. My opinion is that, in attacking you, he is simply aiming a blow at the foundation of the state. But in what way does he say that you corrupt the young? He brings a wonderful accusation against me, which at first hearing excites surprise. He says that I am a poet, or maker of gods, and that I invent new gods and deny the existence of old ones. This is the ground of his indictment. I understand, Socrates. He means to attack you about the familiar sign which occasionally, as you say, comes to you. He thinks that you are a neologian, and is going to have you up before the court for this. He knows that such a charge is readily received by the world, as I myself know too well. For when I speak in the assembly about divine things, and foretell the future to them, they laugh at me, and think me a madman. Yet every word that I say is true. But they are jealous of us all. And we must be brave and go at them. (laughs) Their laughter, friend Euthyphro, is not a matter of much consequence. For a man may be thought wise. But the Athenians, I suspect, do not much trouble themselves about him until he begins to impart his wisdom to others. And then, for some reason or other, Perhaps, as you say from jealousy, they are angry. I am never likely to try their temper in this way. I dare say not, for you are reserved in your behavior, and seldom impart your wisdom. But I have a benevolent habit of pouring out myself to everybody, and would even pay for a listener. And I am afraid that the Athenians may think me too talkative. Now, if, as I was saying, they would only laugh at me, as you say they laugh at you, the time might pass gaily enough in the court. But perhaps they may be in earnest. And then, what the end will be, you soothsayers only can predict. I dare say that the affair will end in nothing, Socrates, and that you will win your cause. And I think that I shall win my own. And what is your suit, Euthyphro? Are you the pursuer or the defendant? I am the pursuer. Of whom? You will think me mad when I tell you. Why? Has the fugitive wings? Nay, he is not very volatile at this time of life. Who is he? My father. Your father, my good man? Yes. And of what is he accused? Of murder, Socrates. By the powers, Euthyphro, how little does the common herd know of the nature of right and truth! A man must be an extraordinary man, and have made great strides in wisdom before he could have seen his way to bring such an action. Indeed, Socrates, he must. I suppose that the man whom your father murdered was one of your relatives? Clearly, clearly he was. For if he had been a stranger, you would never have thought of prosecuting him. I am amused, Socrates, at your making a distinction between one who is a relation and one who is not a relation. For surely the pollution is the same in either case. If you knowingly associate with the murderer when you ought to clear yourself and him by proceeding against him, the real question is whether the murdered man has been justly slain. If justly, then your duty is to let the matter alone. But if unjustly, then even if the murderer lives under the same roof with you and eats at the same table, proceed against him. Now, the man who is dead was a poor dependent of mine who worked for us as a field laborer on our farm in Naxos. And one day, in a fit of drunken passion, he got into a quarrel with one of our domestic servants and slew him. My father bound him hand and foot, and threw him into a ditch, and then sent to Athens to ask of a diviner what he should do with him. Meanwhile, he never attended to him, and took no care about him, for he regarded him as a murderer, and thought that no great harm would be done, even if he did die. Now, this was just what happened. For such was the effect of cold, and hunger, and chains upon him, that before the messenger returned from the diviner, he was dead. And my father and family are angry with me for taking the part of the murderer and prosecuting my father. They say that he did not kill him, and that if he did, the dead man was but a murderer, and I ought not to take any notice, for that a son is impious who prosecutes a father. Which shows, Socrates, how little they know what the gods think about piety and impiety. Good heavens, Euthyphro! And is your knowledge of religion and of things pious and impious so very exact that, supposing the circumstances to be as you state them, you are not afraid, lest you too may be doing an impious thing in bringing an action against your father? The best of Euthyphro, and that which distinguishes him, Socrates, from other men is his exact knowledge of all such matters. What should I, a priest, be good for without it? Rare friend, I think that I cannot do better than be your disciple. Then, before the trial with Miletus comes on, I shall challenge him, and say that I have always had a great interest in religious questions, and now as he charges me with rash imaginations and innovations in religion, I have become your disciple. You, Meletus, as I shall say to him, acknowledge Euthyphro to be a great theologian, and sound in his opinions, and if you approve of him, you ought to approve of me, and not have me into court. But if you disapprove, you should begin by indicting him who is my teacher, and who will be the ruin, not of the young, but of the old, that is to say, of myself whom he instructs, and of his old father whom he admonishes and chastises. And if Miletus refuses to listen to me, but will go on, and will not shift the indictment from me to you, I cannot do better than repeat this challenge in the court. Yes, indeed, Socrates, and if he attempts to indict me, I am mistaken if I do not find a flaw in him. The court shall have a great deal more to say to him than to me. And I, my dear friend, knowing this, am desirous of becoming your disciple, for I observe that no one appears to notice you, not even this Miletus, but his sharp eyes have found me out at once, and has indicted me for impiety, and therefore I adjure you to tell me the nature of piety. And impiety, which you said that you knew so well, and of murder, and of other offences against the gods. What are they? Is not piety in every action always the same? And impiety again, is it not always the opposite of piety, and also the same with itself, having, as impiety, one notion, which includes whatever is impious? To be sure, Socrates. And what is piety? And what is impiety? Piety, Socrates, is doing as I am doing. That is to say, prosecuting anyone who is guilty of murder, sacrilege, or of any similar crime, whether he be your father or mother, or whoever he may be. That makes no difference. And not to prosecute them is impiety. And please to consider, Socrates, what a notable proof I will give you of the truth of my words, a proof which I have already given to others. Of the principle, I mean, that the impious, whoever he may be, ought not to go unpunished. For do not men regard Zeus as the best and most righteous of the gods? And yet they admit that he bound his father Cronos because he wickedly devoured his sons, and that he, too, had punished his own father, Uranus, for a similar reason, in a nameless manner. And yet, when I proceed against my father, they are angry with me. So inconsistent are they in their way of talking when the gods are concerned, and when I am concerned. May not this be the reason, Euthyphro, why I am charged with impiety? That whenever I hear stories like this about the gods, I question them, and therefore I suppose that people think me wrong. But, as you who are well informed about them approve of them, I cannot do better than assent to your superior wisdom. What else can I say, confessing as I do, that I know nothing about them? Tell me, for the love of Zeus, whether you really believe that they are true. Yes, Socrates, and things more wonderful still, of which the world is in ignorance. And do you really believe that the gods fought with one another, and had dire quarrels, battles, and the like, as the poets say, and as you may see represented in the works of the great artists? The temples are full of them, and notably the robe of Athena, which is carried up to the Acropolis at the great Panathenaea, is embroidered with them. Are all these tales of the gods true, Euthyphro? Yes, Socrates. And, as I was saying, I can tell you, if you would like to hear them, many other things about the gods which would quite amaze you. I dare say. And you shall tell me them at some other time when I have leisure. But just at present I would rather hear from you a more precise answer, which you have not as yet given, my friend, to the question. What is piety? When asked, you only replied, doing as you do, charging your father with murder. And what I said was true, Socrates. No doubt, Euthyphro. But you would admit that there are many other pious acts. There are. Remember that I did not ask you to give me two or three examples of piety but to explain the general idea which makes all things pious, to be pious. Do you not recollect that there was one idea which made the impious impious, and the pious pious? I remember. Tell me what is the nature of this idea, and then I shall have a standard to which I may look, and by which I may measure actions, whether yours or those of anyone else. And then I shall be able to say that such and such an action is pious, such another impious. I will tell you, if you like, I should very much like. Piety, then, is that which is dear to the gods. And impiety is that which is not dear to them. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free.